Good morning. morning. Let's begin a class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, as we come together to study today, we invite your spirit and your presence here with us today. Enlighten our minds. Guide us into an ever-advancing truth of your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 13 in the quarterly, The Role of the Church in the Community, and the title is, How Shall We Wait? How shall we wait? And the bottom of the lesson states, our Lord is coming back, that we know. The crucial issue for us is, what are we doing while we wait? On that answer hangs the destiny of our souls. Are they suggesting that our salvation is dependent on what we do? Or are they suggesting that our salvation is dependent on our attitude and relationship with God and that our attitude and relationship with God determines the destiny of our souls and also directs what we do. Is that what they're suggesting? Yeah, I I think that's probably what they mean. It just didn't say it, and it could have been misinterpreted in some circles as, okay, if I'm not doing this, I can't be saved. My my, my soul wrestling, it can can generate a certain fear and a certain desperation to do the right thing if I'm not going to be saved. But, But I think that's not what they're suggesting. And what do they mean by this wait? How shall we wait Do you often think of the Lord's return in such terms as we're waiting for the return of the Lord or the long delay or the Lord has delayed his return? Have you ever think those ideas? I I, I have too. That's the way I've thought. But this lesson caused me to reprocess that and rethink and think of another way about how we look at that. If we focus on the waiting, we're waiting. There's been a delay. He's holding back. He's delaying. Does that put the focus on us? And does it suggest a certain inconvenience to us? Perhaps suggest the idea that God is not being as considerate or as caring. He doesn't care. He's just letting us wait. No, I don't look at it like that. I look at it that he's waiting till everybody is ready. In other words, I know people that I want to see saved. I'm glad he's waiting, but they still have time. Okay. That's how I look at it. The word kind of has a kind of passive connotation. We're waiting in line. Waiting for traffic, waiting, and, and <clears throat> reality is we can, we have a responsibility to, to accelerate his return. Okay, and we're going to unpack that in just a second. This, um, do we have this view about the delay and about the waiting that it, it kind of subtly gets into our mind this way? And if it doesn't, good. But could it get into someone's mind that, that he has chosen to delay his return? That he is waiting to come back if so it could suggest an arbitrary quality he just hasn't chosen to return yet and whenever he gets around to choosing he will come many people actually think this 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 it's embedded in their idea of how they see god's sovereignty god's sovereign and god can do what god wants to do who are we to question him and he hasn't decided to come, and when he decides to come, he'll come. And th- it's the right thing to do because he's perfect and he's holy and it's just right, but, but who are we to question it? I think all these ideas are very destructive. So- God is sovereign, let's be clear. I believe in the sovereignty of God. But his sovereignty is always manifested in harmony with his character of love and always works out through his methods of how he's designed and constructed reality to work. So thinking through design laws rather than imposed law, imposed laws is very arbitrary. Well, he's in charge. He's made a decision. It's just, he had just, it just hasn't come to the point he's decided to come. That's very arbitrary, imposed law. But through design law, if a doctor treats a person with a broken bone and puts them in a cast, does the doctor wait for, to take off the cast? For what is the doctor waiting? For the seal. For the seal. 
Is the wait on the doctor's part a delay, an arbitrary decision, or is there a reason the doctor waits? And the reason, of course, is so that the bone will heal. Is there a lesson in that for why God waits? Remember what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.9? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If you take that idea, who is then determining the timeline for his return? We are. Yeah. God is right on schedule and will come exactly when he's always planned and known he would come. But then, as maybe some of you have already suggested, there's some role we have to play in impacting that timeline. Can a patient, by cooperating with their doctor and following the doctor's instructions, hasten the healing process? And if they're following the instruction, are they healing themselves? No. They're not healing themselves. No. Can a patient who resists the doctor, who's not compliant, who won't follow the instructions, delay the healing process? You ever see that, Russell? (laughs) So, what is the role? What specifically can we do, specifically can we do, to hasten the day of the Lord's return? I've got a first and a second, a primary and a secondary. Not, Not in either. There's one must come first, and then, then you can do the second. What comes first? Spread the knowledge of God's character of love to people. Live it. Live it. That's the second one. The first one, as I understand it, is we must first and foremost cooperate with God in our own hearts and minds to experience His transformation, His healing, His restoration, His preparation of our heart might. So we are personally ready to see him when he comes. We mature. We grow up into the full stature of sons and daughters of God. And secondarily, exactly, then we share that knowledge of God with others. But can you actually share something you don't know? How many of you know calculus? <laughs> so can you teach me calculus? You can't teach me cal- You don't know it. See, we can't teach people about God if we don't know God. So first, we have to come to know him. And then we can teach him. And the sad reality is we're going to come to some of the strategies I think the devil uses to to prevent that from happening. But I think you can get it. One strategy is simply to get people to think they know God when they really don't. And they go out teaching about God, thinking they're doing that very thing. But they're not actually teaching about God. They're teaching a distorted view of God. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. The reason I think so few of us today are teaching people because we don't know them ourselves. Exactly. Sunday's lesson asks us to look at Matthew 24, 4 through 31. And I thought we'd do something we don't do often in here. And we'll read through and, and basically take pauses as we go through these, these verses and unpack their application and what they actually mean. And I'm going to use the remedy um, version as we go through, but, but follow along in any version. Starting in verse 4, Jesus answered, Be careful to think for yourselves so that no one fools you. For over the years there will be many people who arise claiming they will... C- They come from me, or represent me, or even claiming they are the Messiah, that Christ returned. And many who don't think for themselves will be taken in by their charisma. Has this happened already? Remember David Koresh? Jim Jones? Will there be others? Will this happen some more? Keep keep going on. Before the end, there will be wars and murmurings of war. But don't be afraid. Such things will happen, but the end comes later. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom will war against kingdom. To what is this referring? The downfall of Rome and all the wars going on, um, the Crusades, the Napoleonic Wars, World War I, World War II. To what is this referring? Or all of it? Yeah, I think it's referring to all of it. And uh, the wars have gotten more and more massive over time and ultimately became global. 
Nature will suffer as famines, earthquakes, and other natural disasters occur around the world. Has this happened? Do we see natural disasters increasing? What's the reason for this? What's your understanding for the reason for this? Global warming, as you use the term global warming, caused most people, because of the way it's used in our vernacular today, to think of something man is doing to cause this very consequence. That's what they think. Um, Yet, there's another way to look at that as well, and that is that after the flood there was an ice age, and the earth has been slowly warming ever since. There's been a global warming that's simply been happening ever since the earth. And the, and the revelation says before Christ comes, the sun is going to burn with fervent heat and all kinds of very um, intense natural disasters are going to be happening on the earth. So global warming may have a different understanding as a consequence of the slow, gradual changes happening after the flood. So, I, I, I mean, it's pretty well documented glaciers are receding. That's happening. But that's been happening since the flood. (laughs) Has it not? Yes. Yes. But those who don't believe in the Bible and those who don't believe the flood, they can't allow for that, so they have to come up with another interpretation of why it's happening. So the big question, though, these natural disasters occurring around the world, famines, earthquakes, other is this God using his power to inflict Remember the, the seven uh, plagues in, in, in Revelation, the bowls poured out upon the earth, and it describes natural disasters with every one of these. Many theologians, including theologians in the Adventist church, teach that that is actually God sending his angels to earth with power to inflict these disasters upon the earth. Is that how you understand it? What, what, well, then how would you explain it? Satan has allowed more freedom. Okay, why is Satan allowed? What's the, you're right, Satan has allowed more freedom. Okay, We see this a glimpse of this. You say, well, there's a, where's the biblical evidence for that? Book of Job. Satan is removed from a leash there in the life of Job. Now, did God, when God gave him freedom, you can do anything you want except, here's the boundary, you can't kill him. Was Satan restricted to harm? Or could Satan have blessed him with more? Remember, he took Christ to the top of the sun. I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Couldn't even have Job proclaimed the king of the whole world. He could have blessed Job with more wealth, more power. He wasn't restricted to do evil. So the evil you see transpiring is a revelation of his character. Satan is revealing himself here. But he's taken off the leash. So there's an evidence that when he's taken off the leash, we get more. And some things were natural disasters that came. Storms and so forth. Okay, so... But what's the reason at this time in history he gets more freedom on earth? Where's the dwelling place of God on earth today? We might call God the Holy Spirit. So the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth today. Does the Holy Spirit force his way into hearts and minds? So when hearts and minds of people, billions and billions, close permanently to the Holy Spirit, where does the Spirit go? slowly withdrawn from the earth. Not because God is arbitrary, but because we are closing out the dwelling place. And as the Holy Spirit is slowly withdrawn from the earth, Satan gets more and more liberty on the earth. And there's this process happening. This is, in Revelation imagery, described as the seven plagues. But if you read it in the remedy, check it out in the remedy, how I describe it. It's the sevenfold steps of God letting go at the end and God setting the world free and ultimately Satan to have his liberty on this earth to demonstrate how he runs the earth. In, in Revelation, under the, the seven last plagues. 
And then could also, at this simultaneously to this, could human activity also influence some of the changes in nature, like our chemicals, toxins, genetic manipulations, extinguishing or causing, causing certain species to go extinct, and so forth. Could this impact nature? Fishing out the oceans, for instance, and depleting the ocean of, of billions of fish, could that affect what's happening? Sure. So keep going with the, with, the, with the Matthew 24. But just as a woman in labor experiences birth pains that increase in intensity and frequency right up until delivery, so too these events are just the beginning of the labor pains. What does this mean? When a woman goes into labor, and all you mothers in here, remember when you went into labor, does a woman typically say when the labor pains begin, oh no, can't we wait another nine months to deliver this baby? <laughs> Does she typically say that? No. Does the woman, when the labor pains begin, know it's going to be painful? Do you know that? But does she still want to go through it? Because, because what do you know is coming at the end of the pain? Delivery. Delivery. Okay. Do we have such an attitude when we see these events corresponding uh, to the labor pains occurring in the world, these increasing problems and difficulties in the world? Do we get excited that delivery is approaching? Or do we pray for a delay? Do you, I have many of my patients tell me they're afraid of the end time events and they pray for a delay. God, put it off. Don't let it come. God, give us more time. It's like a woman that goes into labor praying for another nine months of, of, of pregnancy. Really? And if we're praying for a delay, do you, do you guys know people who pray? Who actually are afraid for the end time events? Who don't want to see those events come? Do you know people like this? And if we're praying for that, what would it mean if God delays? Are we back to that? We're not preparing ourselves to meet him? All right, keep going. You will be abused, rejected, tortured, and executed, and you will be hated throughout the world because of me. Has this occurred in history? When, yes, when has this occurred in history? When is, when is the fulfillment? We're going to ask these questions on and on again now. When was this fulfilled? When was this fulfilled? Well, hasn't this portion been fulfilled ever since Christ's resurrection? The apostles in the early church experienced this. Many were martyred. Those true to God in the dark in Middle Ages experienced persecution. In the Renaissance, those who brought truth to bear were persecuted. And today around the world, people are still being persecuted for the truth about God when it's presented. During the, during the time of persecution, many will lose heart and reject me and my methods and even betray and hate each other and their families and friends. Many false teachers and fraudulent spokespersons of God will appear and deceive vast numbers of people. When has this occurred? Has this occurred? When? When has this occurred? Since Eden, really. I mean, but, but, but Christ's prophecy, but Christ's prophecy specifically is talking about future events. So we're not, yes, it, it has been happening in the old, but Christ was specifically talking about what will be unfolding after his resurrection. So when, when after that has this occurred? But use your computers and put together other Bible passages. Time of persecution. Many will lose heart, betray each other and their families, false teachers and fraudulent spokespersons. Paul put it together with Thessalonians. Paul spoke of a man of sin arising who would set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple? The spirit temple. This is what the, and how did this man of sin 
get himself into the spirit temple. How did that happen? Anybody? False teaching. False teaching specifically. What's the core root false teaching that has taken root in the hearts and minds of men and still is the primary construct in all denominations of Christianity, including Adventist Church, the primary construct of God that is still infecting the world? That's it. That his laws work like imperial Rome. That God sets up rules and then threatens to punish you if you break his rules. That idea has infected the whole world. And then what happened when that idea came in? Notice, prior to Constantine, Christians died as martyrs, refused to go to war and form armies and fight against Rome, right? Lived communally, shared their goods with others. But after Constantine, when this idea of law changed, and God doesn't operate like Christ revealed, self-sacrificially, if turn the other cheek, greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. Um, no, that's not how, no, God works like, like Caesar. And if you break his rules, he, he, you've offended his authority. And justice requires that he must punish rule-breaking. And what do we get? What, what did Christianity do? The Crusades. The Dark Ages. The Inquisition. The conflict between Protestant and Catholic that has raged all across Europe, burning each other at the stake. You know, Protestants burn Catholics, Catholics burn Protestants. Even in our own lifetime, Northern Ireland was still having war, Protestant and Catholic. Why? In America, the Salem witch trials, Christians owned slaves. Prior to, prior, you know, Christians own slaves. I mean, come on, how could they? Because they were operating under imposed law, didn't love. But with, with those who stay faithful, practicing my methods of truth and love until the end, they will be saved. Which means what? Jesus said, those who stay faithful through all this tr- to the end will be saved. What's it mean to be saved? We'll have everlasting life for sure. No question. Can we... Can we Describe or define that more clearly. Yes. You're described as the seven last plagues, but in Egypt there were ten. The first three affected all of mankind, but the last seven only affected people who were not God's people. So we will be saved from those seven last plagues, whereas the ungodly will not. Okay. So saved. I guess I'm trying to get you to, to spin your mind around that word saved. If you go to the ER after being bitten by a rattlesnake and you say, doctor, save me. Ah, healed. That's actually the Greek sozo, means to heal. Yes, you had a comment? Save from our selfishness to an unselfish heart. So those who stay true to God and his methods to the end will be healed, will be transformed, will be restored to Christ-likeness of character. Can we be restored to Christ-likeness of character? If we refuse to come back to acknowledge God is like Jesus revealed him to be. We, if we reject God's true nature and character and hold to the imperialistic view of God. Now, because there's a law involved here, law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We actually become like the God we worship. And so if we claim we worship God, but we worship an imperial dictator, that obstructs God's ability to actually transform our character. Next verse 14. And the good news of the kingdom of love will be preached throughout the entire world to all peoples to provide evidence of God's true character and methods, and then the end will come. What's the message to lighten the world? 
I think that's the true message, the gospel. You know, the, in the more traditional versions say the gospel preached. Well, what's the gospel? The good news. The good news about what? T- t- typical Christian evangelical Christianity teaches the good news is that God, that Jesus came, took his sins upon you, paid your debt, and offers you free pardon so you can have eternal life. That's the good news. The good news is about what Jesus did for you so that you can be saved. Would it be good news if you get to live for eternally with God and God in character is like Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler or Satan, a dictator who, if you step out of line, we use his power to kill you? No. Remember, the gospel is, first angel's message, the everlasting or eternal gospel or eternal good news, meaning it was good news in eternity past as well as eternity future. The good news is always good news even before history Time in history when there was sin. There was no sin. There was no need for a Savior. There was a point in time. There was no sin. That good news is still eternal. It was still good news then. God is like this. He's not like that. Because God never changes. He's the same today, yesterday. He's the only one who's eternal. The eternal good news is always the good news about God. And so, as you think about the good news of the kingdom of will be preached to the entire world, was witnessed to all nations and people, and, and the second has the good news about God's character actually gone to the entire world? Or instead, has this imperialistic, punishing God construct been taken to the whole world? Yeah. Next verse, 15. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by Daniel, occupying the holy place, understand this. We'll get to the next verse in a moment. What is the abomination that causes desolation? So what... When, what when, when, when Jesus is speaking to his apostles, and he's telling them, when you see the abomination that causes desolations, spoken up by Daniel, occupying the holy place, what's he referring to? I, I'm not disagreeing with you. The, the change of the law construct. <clears throat> there, it's an abomination to say that God's law is a imposed law, and it causes desolation. So what do you say to those who say he's referring to Rome in AD 70, standing around Jerusalem, and it was a warning to the Christians that when they see that, they should flee, because that's what comes next. Those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains and so forth. It's the next verse we'll get to. What do you say to, to that? I don't know. It's a dual application. Okay? So, so, so the point is, to remember Israel, the nation of Israel, in, throughout the Bible period, are actors on a stage. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 4, we are a spectacle, a theater to, an, uh, a, a, a theater to angels, to men. Okay, Actors on a stage. This is a little theater. The temple was, uh, was a stage with the neat props and cool costumes, and they had a script that they had to follow. Some people call that script scripture. It's a script given by God to follow, to act out a larger reality. If you doubt me on this, just compare Hebrews and what Hebrews does with the script. Hebrews, the New New Testament book, shows you that all of that stuff was to be teaching something larger. That's what it was for. It had no saving power in it at all. It says repeatedly in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 that the sacrifice of animals and all this had no power to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. Because it's actually about transforming the inner man. And so, when you read that, and then there's always... Historical realities happening in Judea, in Israel, but those realities have a lesson book application to a larger reality. 
we can unpack some of those. But this one, particularly, first application, yes, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, which is pagan Rome's soldiers surrounding Jerusalem and destroying the little theater. And what's the little theater symbol of? It's symbolic, that temple symbolic of what? Our, our mind. Yes, Jesus actually said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Know ye not that ye are a temple for the Holy Spirit and God dwells in you. That building was symbolic of, this, of the, the, the heart, mind, souls of, of intelligent beings. That's what it was symbolic of. So as we see the pagan armies surrounding Jerusalem and destroying the temple, then it's a warning. So as I understand it, as imperial, uh, uh, during the temple, then, then imperial Rome, the system of imperial law infecting Christianity, and Christianity begins practicing beastly methods of coercion. And so Christians should beware and watch out and flee that institution. Just as the Christians in Jerusalem should flee Jerusalem so that as the temple's being destroyed, we should flee this system of imperialism that acts so beastly and coerces others so that our spirit temples aren't destroyed. Yes? I always thought that the abomination of desolation is when the Sunday doll actually does come and we have no more need for prayer because people think that Christ is here on earth. That's not my understanding. I've always thought that. As we unpack, as we get to some more of the, what Christ has said, see if that fits, because you're going you're gonna to find here in just a moment that those days are going to be shortened. So, does it, do you see the application of a pagan army? Oh, yes, go ahead. The references to Daniel 11.31 and chapter 12.11, and um, so it take a lot of deep understanding, but looking at those verses, it appears to be the... The, the system of false thinking, the Catholic system of imperial... And do you notice I have not been using Roman Catholic language in here? Correct. I and, I, and I purposely don't use that language because it is not about Roman Catholicism. We, we have deceived ourselves in focusing on a system of Roman Catholicism attacking Romanism uh, or, or, or the Catholic Church, let's put it that way. It is a theory of imperialism. Exactly. So all Christianity, I use the word Christian, Christianity became infected with this imperialistic thinking and Christianity went to war with crosses on their tunics into the Crusades and Christianity, Protestant and Catholic alike, burned each other at the stake and did these things. So it's a Christian problem that we have become infected with this imperial law construct. The abomination that causes desolation is the abomination of lies about God, that God operates like a, a, an imperial dictator. His laws are no different than the kind that sinful human beings make, and he enforces those laws in the same way we do. You better do it or else. And that idea infected the spirit temple, destroying the image of God in man and many people. And that's what I think is, is the application here. Remember... Um, so what is more abominable to destroy a city with buildings, even killing people, destroying their physical body, or destroying the image of God in a human being, destroying the soul? Which is more abominable? If you're not sure, remember Jesus, Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of him who can destroy the body, but cannot destroy the soul. Okay, It's not primarily about having your body destroyed. It's about having the image of God destroyed within you. That's the greatest abomination of all. And that's what Christ is truly warning against. But in AD 70, you get the metaphorical enactment 
of what was coming when the man of sin arises and seeks to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So verse 16, those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. Don't waste time trying to gather your things, but leave immediately. If you're outside, flee. Don't even go inside for a coat. It will be horrible. It will be a horrible time, especially for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that you will not have to flee in the winter or on the Sabbath. So all my prayers remain growing up that I prayed that I wouldn't have to play in the winter on a Saturday. <laughs> I mean, how many years? As little kids, we, I prayed that. Is this not real? We're talking about this prophecy, not about maybe other prophecies that are talking about a different point in time. Okay? So does that mean there won't come a time of trouble in the end? But Yes, there will. But that's not what I think Christ is talking about here. Yeah. Primarily, I think he is first talking about the Christians in, in AD 70, those who were still in Jerusalem. And according to historians, they all fled, and they weren't caught up in, in, the, um, in the destruction of Jerusalem. But also having an application as the lesson book, as we just dis- discussed. Um, and then for that time, for that time of trouble, will be the worst the world has ever seen or will ever see. If God didn't intervene to stop it, no one would live through it. But for the sake of those who have partaken the remedy, God will shorten those troubled times. When is this referring? Perhaps it is a triple application. I think it certainly refers to, again to what's happening in Jerusalem. If you actually read the history of what's happened, the history of what happened in Jerusalem, but again, that's, that is a object lesson for the other application. What happened in Jerusalem at AD 70 was horrible against, I mean, it was terrible if you, if you read the ugliness that happened in Jerusalem. I think the greater fulfillment, though, was the 1260-year prophecy, 538 to 1798, when the church was so infected with this imperialism that the spirit temple, the minds and hearts of men, were being destroyed in horrible ways. And just as in Jerusalem, 87, they were starving for physical food, during the 1260 years, they were starving for spiritual food. And people were slaughtered, literally slaughtered in Jerusalem, and the saints were literally being slaughtered during the Dark Ages by this system. The temple of Jerusalem was torn down by the assault of a pagan army, And the spirit temple was torn down by the assault of pagan ideas about God that infected the minds of men. And this was foretold by both Jesus and Paul. Again. And then notice why I don't think it's really the time of the end. It's the 1260 years because notice the very next words. At that time in history, if anyone proclaims, Look, the Messiah, the Savior is here. He's there. Don't believe it. For false messiahs, false apostles appear, some performing miracles and signs in order to deceive those who don't think for themselves. Their counterfeit will be so close that the true, to the true that it will almost dupe those who have partaken the remedy. So remember what I have warned you before it happens. Be prepared. If anyone tells you the Messiah is in the wilderness of Palestine, don't go there. The Savior cannot be found in secret meetings or his coming is, is a secret event. Don't believe it. For the coming of the Son of Man will be visible to the entire world, just like the sunlight dawns in the east and shines to the west, covering the entire planet. You can be certain you will not find the Son of Man where people seek to speak with the dead. Think of vultures eating corpses, for that is what's happening there. As soon as these days of trouble are over, light from the sun and the moon and the stars and so forth. So notice where Christ is placing this days of trouble. Before, you see where that placement is? Okay, back to a couple of questions now. 
um, about the secret event and the secret meetings. To what is this referring? Could it be referring to the rise of spiritualism and seeking to speak with the dead in secret meetings, seances, Ouija boards? Could it be a rise of spiritualism that corresponds with prophecies and revelation of the three frogs coming out of the mouth and the, uh, and the, uh, and the angel that has the keys to the abyss that opens the, the abyss and the smoke comes up out of the abyss? This is referring to the rise of spiritualism in the world at the end of time. As soon as the days of trouble are over, light from the sun, and now notice my clear interpretation here. Some people are uncomfortable with this. Notice the Light from the sun and moon will no longer be seen as evidence of God's creatorship, but their light will be darkened by evolutionism. The stars in heaven will be disregarded as evidence of the creator, and the power of heaven will be shaken out of the land and out of the hearts of people. In other words, after 1798, the evidences that have been historically in the sky teaching people about the creator God will no longer be viewed. Their light is not enlightening to the minds of men anymore. Our minds are darkened, and we don't think you know, everything is continued as it always has been. Which do you think actually is, is, a, is, a, is a more accurate sign to the world of the approaching end? A specific dark day happening in one small section of the globe, North America, at a, one day in time where they had an eclipse? Or the fact that the entire creatorship of God has been displaced out of the minds of men, and people don't look at the sun, moon, and stars as evidence of God's creatorship anymore. It's, it's interpretive. At that time, at what time, after the above events have occurred, the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Everyone will see him, and all the nations of the selfish world will be grief-stricken. They will see the Son of Man arriving amongst the clouds of the sky in the unveiled pow- with the unveiled powers and splendor of infinite love and truth. And with a loud blast of the trumpet, he will direct his angels to gather those who have partaken of the remedy from the entire world, from one end of the globe to the other. So do you see that Christ is answering the question of his, of his apostles, one with these events, and he wove together both things for, for their time in AD 70, but also things for a larger reality? And do you see the application? Do you think I've overstretched it some? Maybe. It's okay. It's okay. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. On Monday's lesson... Asks us to look at Second Peter three, so let's look at Second Peter three. Let's see what it, what we think of this. My dear friends, this is the second letter I have written you. These letters are to motivate you to take control of your minds and engage in healthy thinking. Do we have a role to play in the healing of our own minds? Do we have a responsibility to think for ourselves, to reason, to weigh evidence, to make choices? Must we choose to evaluate the evidence for God's character? Choose to open our hearts and trust to him or not? And then, must we choose to do what's right, healthy, and reasonable governance of ourselves? And this is how I understand the Holy Spirit works. Many people come to me and they're praying for deliverance for something in their life. But the way the Holy Spirit works, he's the spirit of truth and love. The Holy Spirit works by revealing truth to our minds in ways that we can comprehend and bring us a conviction of, not just conviction of sin, but often a conviction of duty a conviction of of certainty, this is the course that we need to take. But then at that point, the Holy Spirit leaves us free to decide. He will not choose for us. We have to choose. And when we choose 
to do what we, what the truth, what we're convicted is our responsibility, then we receive divine power to follow through. We don't have the power in our strength to do what God calls us to do, but we don't get the power until we make the choice. And many people are praying for the power without ever, ever having made the choice. Do you disagree with that distillation? I think that's how it works. So, Pray, what is the truth? What is my understanding? Do I have a decision to make? It may not be a behavioral decision. It may be an internal decision of which belief you're going to hold to. It may be a belief-based decision. It may be a decision of whether I'm going to open my heart and trust to him or not. That, that's a decision we have to make. Yes? Is there a, a synergy between our exercise of the will to choose uh, in accordance with uh, natural law, the, the law of exertion, and then receiving you know, divine help uh, to yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yep. The way the way God changes, and this is God. Can God change someone's character, heart, transform them in the inner person without their cooperation? No. no. He has the power to overwrite, but notice the word overwrite. And if he used his power to inflict, I'm using that word, inflict change on a person, that individual would no longer be that person. It would be a new a new a new identity, a new individuality. The old person would be destroyed. The only way to free us from the fear and selfishness and shortcomings in our character is by our active will for participation with him. But we don't have the power to free ourselves. That power comes from him, but we have to cooperate. We'll get to some of those quotations in a minute. Let's go on with the, the text here. Um, <clears throat> I want you to remember the truths recorded in the past by God's spokesperson and the instructions given by our Lord and Savior through his ambassadors. First of all, understand and don't be surprised in the last days. Scoffers and doubters will arise. They will prefer the sickness of selfishness while ridiculing the cure, labeling the infection of selfishness as normal. They will say, survival of the fittest is the way the universe runs. This is why we are here, not because of divine creation. Where is this so-called God? Where is the coming he promised? Ever since human history has been recorded, the principles of evolution have governed life and all things continue just as they always have. But these scoffers deliberately deny the truth and ignore the facts that long ago, by God's word, the world was created out of water and with water. They reject the fact that it was by these same waters that a flood destroyed the world. And they refuse to believe that the same word has testified that the present world, which is kept for the day of final diagnosis and elimination of everyone and everything deviant from God's design, will be destroyed by fire. Pause. Have we seen this transpiring? Seen this scoffing, this ridiculing of the, of the creator God, this ridiculing of the fact that, that the world was actually made by God, that the world, there was a, a worldwide devastating flood that destroyed the world by water, uh, that, that there is no God. Things just continue on as they've always continued on. Billions of years. Have we seen this very scoffing coming and, uh, and going on? Are we living? Yes. Um, where there's naturalistic explanations. Because God prophesied these things, can we have confidence that a day is coming when all the deviations from God's design will be eliminated and the whole universe will be restored back to harmony? Can we have confidence in that? By the way, do you prefer the... the, Notice the language. I know you picked up on it when I read. um, Kept for the day of final diagnosis. Pardon? Um, that's verse 7. Do you, did you notice that, that I, I used the word diagnosis rather than judgment? Which do you prefer? And think through the implications of both words. When a doctor makes a diagnosis, is that not a judgment? Yes. 
It is a judgment, isn't it? He's assessing what's going on, and he diagnosed this is what's going. It's a judgment. But do you get a different resonance in your heart when you hear diagnosis than you do when you get hear the word judgment? They have final judgment. Which one is operating in your mind on design law? That's right. God is diagnosing the accurate condition of every person's heart and mind. And that makes it understand this is the condition. Judgment, though, makes it appear that it's arbitrary. It's a judicial process. He's evaluating. He's coming. He's coming to a decision. And it's the decision of the judge that determines everybody's course. That's how many Christians view it. That we'll have to stand before the judge one day and he's going to decide. I'm scared. I hope, I hope my advocate is there to plead with him and influence him and, and beg him off from what he will decide. Because, and I hope we have somebody stand there so when he looks at me, he can't see me. He'll only see Jesus who stands in my place and, and he'll see Jesus and he'll decide that, that I'm good even though I'm not. This is, this is ridiculous. It's like going into the emergency room terribly sick and the doctor comes in to evaluate you and you shove your healthy brother in front of you and say, evaluate him and anything you find about him, put it in my record. How does that help you? I mean, that's what penal theology does. It makes God looks out to be stupid and contradictory. So I purposely chose the word because it leads us to design law. And if you want evidences for God's judgment being this very thing from Scripture, just remember Revelation at the end of time. Let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is wicked be wicked still. That's a judgment. Let their condition be what their condition is. Or Hosea. Ephraim is, this is a quote, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. What's the judgment there? His heart is not going to be separated from his idols. There's nothing more we can do for him. Let him go. That's a judgment, isn't it? Judgment of his condition. Simply acknowledging the truth. That's right. What do you understand the fire to be? Did anybody look at our Common Reason Facebook page? Well, check it out. There's a big banner across the top. It's got fire in the shape of a heart. And it's quoting Isaiah 33, 14, and 15. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? He who walks righteously. Dwells in the fire for eternity. You see, this is 180 degrees backwards from what most of Christianity teaches. Most of Christianity teaches that the wicked spend eternity in the fire. And the place you don't want to go is the fire. But if you actually read your Bible, you'll see that when the Ancient of Days took his throne in Daniel chapter 7, rivers of fire came out from before him. And 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands stand in this fire. Or Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Or Revelation says in chapter 22 that there'll be no need for a sun and moon to light the place of God's presence will be his light. Or in Ezekiel chapter 28, Lucifer before his fall used to walk among the fiery stones of God's presence. Or when God spoke to Moses at the bush, what was the bush doing? Burning. But it didn't get consumed. And you'll find everywhere God shows up. Mount Mount of Transfiguration. What is Jesus? It's described as the sun, bright as the sun. So is Moses and Elijah. But they're not harmed. Jesus, still in his mortal body, which is going to be killed very shortly, that body dies, was not harmed by the fire. Get your mind around that. The fire is not harmful. Neither were uh, Peter, James, and John, even though they were on the pathway to healing. Yes, and they weren't harmed by it. We go 
argue that they had not yet been fully converted yet. And Moses coming down from the mountain, his face is doing what? Did he have third degree burns? Did his whiskers even catch fire? No, but what did the people do? They actually experienced suffering. They actually caused them pain. And they begged for him to cover us. Why? Nadab and Abihu take unauthorized fire in before the Lord. Numbers chapter 4. Or Numbers chapter 10. You have to look it up. But Nadab and Abihu. And fire comes out from the Lord and consumes them and they die before the Lord. Leviticus, is it? Thanks. And, um, and, and, and fire comes out and consumes them. And they die before the Lord. And then the next verse, Moses sends the cousins in, drags them out, still in their tunics. If I hit you with a flamethrower and burn you till you die, will you be in your clothes when I'm done? Get your mind around that. This fire is not the fire of combustion. This is the fire of life-giving glory, the fire of love and truth, the unveiled presence of God. Only those whose hearts and minds have been freed from fear, selfishness, and distortions can rejoice and live in this life-giving glory. All those who hold the selfishness and lies, the truth, they don't want the truth. They deny the truth. And you've seen this in miniature. You've seen this in microcosm. When you have somebody in your life that has been living a lie of some kind and you try to bring the truth to them, see, what do they do? They run from it. They get angry. They get uncomfortable. They get upset. It causes suffering. They will try to destroy you, perhaps, or flee from your presence because they don't want to deal with the truth. This is why they beg for the mountains to hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne. Why? because they don't want to look in the mirror of reality and see their own wicked heart condition and the history of their own lives they've never been healed from. So the text, God is a consuming fire. I would say most people have interpreted from interpreted it from the understanding Christianity has purported as very threatening. Right. So instead, how would you say God is a consuming fire just okay. to a person in that text? So God is a consuming fire. What, what does he consume? What's being consumed by the fire? Matter? Is matter being consumed? Or sin? Sin. sin? To sin, wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. Okay. What is sin made out of? Is sin made out of wood? Is sin made out of plastic? Is sin made out of any physical matter? No, sin has its two roots. Two roots. Lies. Satan is the father of lies. What is it that burns out a lie? Truth and selfishness. What is it that burns out selfishness? Love. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and? And at Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, they saw two, split fork, two tongues or two streams of fire. The fires of truth and the fires of love. That's the fire. The fire of truth and love. And it didn't harm any of them because their hearts are ready to receive it. Okay? Good question. It says, but the, Lord, but the Lord's return, coming suddenly like a thief, will surprise many people. There will be a loud roar, and the sky will disappear. The very elements will melt in the intense heat, and the entire planet will be laid bare. Since everything the world values will end in this way, what kind of people are you to be? Each person must partake of the remedy and be healed, live a life that loves others and honors God as you anticipate our Lord's return and work to speed his coming. There is... Um, I wanted to pause here. I want to come back to the part about the elements melting in a moment. Uh, and it'll come in the next section. On this part, just I wanted to note, can we speed his coming? Peter says we can speed his coming. Or hasten the day in some versions. Hasten the day. 
We already talked about how to do that. Keep in mind, there's a role for us. Number one, am I partaking of all that God has provided for my healing and restoration? Am I personally ready to stand in that life-giving glory, to stand in God's presence unveiled? Am I ready? Then if not, there's, there's, your, there's your work. And if, if I'm ready, and I've trusted God with my life, God, whatever needs to be fixed in me, fix it. I can't fix it, but I'm following you where you lead. Then am I sharing? Am I sharing this picture of God to free so many billions on this planet who are believers in God, Christians who are stuck in that dark system, afraid of God, don't want to stand in his presence, hoping that someone will be there to protect them from him. Adventist historically, I remember growing up as a kid in prayer meeting, praying, hope I die before I have to stand before the judge without an intercessor. You remember that idea? On that day, the atmosphere of selfishness will be consumed by fire, and the very elements contaminated by sin will melt in the intense heat. But just as promised, Jesus will make a new atmosphere and an entirely new earth, free from disease and defect, free from the infection of selfishness, the eternal home of the healed. Do you notice that Peter here is mixing the two comings that are yet to come? There's the coming at the beginning of the thousand years, and there's the coming at the end of the thousand years. When he comes at the beginning of the thousand years, is the earth made new and become home of the righteous at that point? No. So he's mixing both comings here. The coming um, where he comes to take his saints back for a thousand years and the coming where he all things. He just winds it all together in one experience. In the end, he's coming back and he's going to wipe out sin and, and wipe out all defects and care and the elements will melt and the earth will be made new and it'll be the home of the righteous. So there's two things kind of just balled up together here. That's why you got the elements melted, because there will come a time when the elements will melt in the fervent heat, when there will be a fire of combustion, if you will, when God recreates the entire planet. That's going to happen. So please, my dear friends, since you long for the day of the Lord's return, cooperate in every way with God's healing plan so that you will be found without any defect, totally cured and restored to complete unity with him. Remember that our Lord's patience gives time for the remedy to spread and healing to occur, just as our dear brother Paul explained in his letters, as God revealed it to him. Paul writes about God's remedy and healing plan in all his letters, but his letters contain some technical details and intricate illustrations, and thus can be difficult to understand. And those who don't understand God's healing plan distort Paul's writings, as they do some other scriptures to misrepresent God. I didn't make that up. I just That's just my way of saying it. But you read, Peter wrote that. Has this happened? Has Paul's writings been <laughs> misused? Do you know that within Christianity, there's this debate over two atonement models? And the one atonement model, the, the, P, the primary atonement model in Christianity is penal substitution theology. We're, it's, and it's all based on imposed law. Rules have been broken. Justice requires punishment. Jesus came, took our sins, and was punished by his father to pay the legal penalty. And only a perfect sacrifice could pay the debt, the sin debt that we owe to the father. This is, this is typically it. And level four thinking can only think one level above. And one level above they comprehend is, is love for others. And that's um, moral influence theory. And so they, they argue back and forth. And they argue, well, Paul's writings support penal substitution. John's writings focus on um, the, the, the atonement of love and reconciliation, moral influence theory. And they argue about the Johannian versus the Pauline theologies. And that is a distortion of Paul's writings. Because Paul's writings teach the exact same atonement that John's writings teach. I'm going to move on to Tuesday's lesson. The mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church... 
says here in the paragraph two, as expressed in the general conference working policy to make disciples of all people communicating the everlasting gospel of the kingdom in the context of the three angels' messages of revelation, leading them to accept Jesus as personal savior and unite with his remnant church, discipling them to serve him as Lord and preparing them for his soon return. And I'm going to stop right there. What did you hear as the, the, the message here? Become part of the church. Adding membership. It sounded that way a little bit, didn't it? Yeah. But, um, yeah, it sounds like in this idea that to, present the, uh, the, that to present the gospel in this context of the three angels' message means to some people converting people to a particular institution. I don't think that's what it means at all. I don't think it means that at all. What's the good news? We've already said the good news about God. He's not a dictator. He's not like Satan has made him out to be. He's a God of love. So let's see. I did this for you last week. Let's see if anybody can do it back for me this week. What are the three angels' messages through the design law? Anybody? Want to try to articulate them? Karen. Number one. Yeah. Okay, number one. God's a creator. Let's do it all. Fear God and give glory to him. Oh, okay. So the fear part means, how do we give glory to him? Character. Reveal his character in your own. So be in awe of God and reveal his character and for the hour of his judgment has come. What does that mean? He has allowed himself. The time in earth's history has come where enough truth has been recovered from that. Remember the attack we talked about earlier? The man of sin is going to rise, send himself from God's temple, proclaim himself to be God. That after the 17, you know, the 1260 year period, then there comes this unfolding of the three angels' message. And so be in awe of God and reveal his, his, his character in yours to give him glory. For the hour in earth's history has come for us to make a right judgment about him. The hour of his judgment. Has come. We can actually judge him to be as Jesus refinedly again. Yes, the hour of his, not the hour of a judicial process in heaven when he is judging us. That's a distortion of imposed law. The hour has come for us to give a right judgment about who God is. Then worship him, and with that judgment, with that seeing him for who he is, what do we do with that? Worship him who? And so what does that call us back to? What kind of worship? designer worship we reject the dictator views of god this whole penal substitution theology thing we see as an infection of christianity that has obstructed our true knowledge of god and we worship him who made the heavens the earth and we understand design law and then babylon has fallen has fallen the other churches and religions not just churches but the other religions of the world have fallen into a system of imposed arbitrary rules legal theologies with a punishing god just like babylon had and it's a system of confusion a power over, and then those who reject God, who is love, and his law of love, and prefer instead the beastly method of imperialism and coercion, mark themselves in their minds by believing God is that way, their foreheads, or mark themselves in their hands by practicing those coercive measures on other people, regardless of which day they worship on. And who are the remnant? Those that keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, which means what? What are the commandments of God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. His design. And the testimony of Jesus, that we hold to the testimony, the actual 
testimony, witness that Jesus gave. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father is exactly like Jesus had revealed him to be. We do not give this idea that Jesus is our loving advocate friend who pleads to his Father, my blood, my blood, Father, to influence the Father not to lash out against us. That is not holding to the testimony of Jesus. Jesus said in John 16, 26, I will not pray the Father for you because the Father loves you himself. We hold to the testimony of Jesus. There's no need. God, for God so loved the world, he gave his only. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his son but gave him up, how will he not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, he is at the Father's right hand and is also, in addition to, interceding for us. The scripture is clear. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. This idea that has infected Christianity, that Jesus is our advocate pleading to his Father, denies the testimony of Jesus. We, the remnant, hold to the testimony of Jesus. Boy, I had some more things I wanted to get into. But boy, our time goes by so fast, doesn't it? Tuesday's lesson, which is what we're still in. Um, it says, faith without works is dead. And you discover that, that in the imperial law model, this causes all types of weird conflicts within their, within their theology. Um, they teach that, uh, that all of our sins were placed upon Christ 2,000 years ago, paid for there, and, and a, a legal, legal atonement has been achieved so that when you accept Jesus, God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. You're declared by the, you're, he declares you righteous even though he knows you're not righteous. Think about that contradiction that's occurring in the character and mind of God, that he would declare something to be true that's not true. But that's what they teach. And that, uh, that all, of our works are con- all of our works are contaminated by sin, so our works can't do anything to, um, to pay the penalty um, for our sins so that Christ uh, did the perfect work, and that is offered to God as our legal payment, and uh, so forth. This is all design law stuff. The Hebrews tells us, look at the... Actually, that's all imposed law stuff. Look at the design law. Hebrews tells us that our faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things. Substance, Greek word, hypostasis. First half hypo is an hypoglycemic. Hypotension means under. Stasis means standing. Translated into Latin, substance. Sub as in subway. Submarine, subterranean means under. Stance, standing. Translated into English, faith is our under. Standing and understanding has two definitions, both which apply to our faith. One is our comprehension and understanding. We actually understand God and agree with him, and it has a secondary, which means we have an agreement. We have an understanding with God. Example, a person gets infected with anthrax and ends up in the doctor's office, and the doctor examines them, gives them the accurate diagnosis, and communicates to them, I can heal you, I have a remedy developed that will cure you, and I'll provide it to you at no cost. Do you trust me? If I provide you this remedy, will you take it and follow my instructions? Do we have an understanding? That's our faith. We have an understanding with God that he has provided remedy that we can't provide. And if we trust him and follow his instructions, he will heal and restore us. We have an understanding. We not only understand him, we have an understanding of how our relationship will work. And I've got some other quotations in here that uh, talk about that as, as we go through. But think that through. That's our faith. Our faith is our understanding with God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have taken the initiative to send Jesus Christ to this earth to, number one, reveal the truth, to dispel the lies and win us his trust. Number two, to provide a remedy to, to, to heal and transform us. And, and number three, that, that you have poured out all your agencies 
from heaven for our good and for our healing. We open our hearts to you. We understand your goodness as Jesus has, has revealed it to us. And we enter into an understanding with you that as we trust you and follow you, you will heal and transform us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.